Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Can I just ask? Shut up, Evan. I'm curious. Could you shut up, Evan? One thing I was thinking about. Shut up, Evan. So there are some rumors out there. Evan, shut up! Is it okay if I just ask? Shut up, Evan. Okay, but can I just... I didn't even say anything. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I am Evan Ross Katz. And if you are listening to this on release day, and it is in fact March 15th, then it just so happens that in addition to this episode, it's also the day of the release of my book, my very first book, Into Every Generation, A Slayer is Born, How Buffy Staked Our Hearts. It's a book I've been working on for quite some time now. The process began in October 2020, and as anyone who has written a book or knows anything about the literary world knows, it is an, at times, arduous process, and one that, I mean, I can't say I fully knew what I was getting myself into, Um, and here we are. Here we are. Um, If you have not yet pre-ordered, no worries. You can go ahead and order. You can go to your local bookstore. We love a local bookstore and pick it up today. I was thinking, you know, I could tell you all about how much I love Buffy or how I discovered Buffy, et cetera, um, but it's all in the book. And isn't that sort of the point, like to encourage people to go read the book? But this is a podcast, not a book. So, okay, how do we thread this needle? I thought, you know what? Let's give listeners uh, a sampling of the book via the audiobook, which is also subsequently available. And you know what? You know what? We should also purchase that in addition to the book. And that, you go to the local bookstore, you pick up the book, you come home, you go online, you audible, or I, I don't know how audio works, but you pick it up. You pick up, the, you pick up the audiobook. You do it all. Anyway, this is going to be a sample of one of my favorite chapters from the book. It's chapter 22. It's called SMG and the Weight of the World. One thing that was very important to me in this process of writing this book was not only to show love for Sarah Michelle Gellar, but sort of build out not only why I love her so much, but why she's so beloved by many of her co-stars as well as friends and fans of hers. So this chapter is sort of a culmination of both, you know, espousing my belief that she is the greatest actress uh, living today, uh, as well as, you know, other beliefs and and heaps of praise uh, on her. So I'm really, really proud of it. This is the first chance anyone has had to hear the audiobook. So this is something of an exclusive. Take that for whatever that means. And uh, I'm going to throw now to a little uh, sample of that chapter. When was Buffy on the air? 
Pushing Daisies, The Hobbit, and Guardians of the Galaxy star Lee Pace starts off during our interview. It was 1997 to 2003, I tell him. Yeah, I went to school in 1997, so I was kind of locked in the vault at Juilliard for much of the time that it was on the air. I don't think I've ever seen it, to be honest. He thinks for a moment. No, I've definitely seen episodes. I've seen the musical episode, which I have to agree is very fun. But I never watched the show when it was airing. I kind of love that Lee Pace agreed to do an interview with me for a Buffy the Vampire Slayer-themed book, having never seen the show. In his defense, I came to him more as one of Sarah Michelle Gellar's BFFs than as a famous fan of the show. They met in 2009 when the pair starred in the little scene indie flick Possession. You make a good case for checking it out, he tells me when I argue my points as to why he should drop everything and start watching from the beginning. Sarah knows what everyone is doing. I remember her looking at the call sheet and reordering it for the assistant directors because she understands how those days go. She understands what we need to film to make the scene go. She's such a professional. That, and she's a vicious prank player, to be honest. I remember going up to Squamish to spend a weekend hiking and camping while we were filming Possession, and I came back on a Sunday night, and she had somehow gotten into my hotel room and had covered it in pictures of herself. There were pictures in the pockets of my clothes, in my shoes, in my books. I was finding pictures of Sarah two years later. I remember putting my hand in a coat pocket and coming out with one of her headshots. It's a testament to how beloved Geller is that someone like Pace would take the time to do an interview where the prompt was just, love on Sarah Michelle Geller with me, please. But that he did, and with great enthusiasm. She is good at being a friend. She is so supportive, remembers things, checks in. When I first moved to LA to do Pushing Daisies, I had this house, and I didn't have hardly any furniture in it, and she gave me a bed. That's who she is. Every year, we try to get each other on April Fool's. And if you were to ask her, she would tell you that I've never been able to trick her yet. But I'm sure I've gotten her once or twice. He stops, thinks, reconsiders. But no, she's too clever. When I was doing Angels in America on Broadway, I heard Lee, Lee, outside of my dressing room window, and I looked out, and there's Sarah from the street below yelling up to me. She's a friend that brings positive energy into your life. All you have to do is look at her SNL appearances to see how game she is. She shows up. She shows up with her full self. In this industry, you run into a lot of assholes. But when you find someone like Sarah, who consistently has your back and consistently shows up with fun invitations, you cling to it immediately. Sarah's not going to waste your evening complaining about stuff. She's the best. Seth Green, one of Geller's closest friends, shared similar sentiments. She's one of the finest examples of a woman that I've ever met. Especially having known her since she was a child, seeing her intentionally chart this path, but also roll with whatever she received that was unexpected, I remain in awe of her all the time. She's one of my how-to-be-a-good-parent inspirations, and she really sets a bar for how to be a good friend. I love her, and I hope we're friends until we die, and maybe we'll meet each other in an astral plane. Who knows? I ask Selma Blair to share with me what it is about Geller that makes her such a remarkable human being. She had a lot to say. She always liked changing into a sensible shoe or Ugg boots on set, unlike myself, Blair recalled with a laugh. I wanted to wear wardrobe all around between takes. So proud was I to be an actress, 
new to this entire world of Hollywood. I am older, but naturally felt younger than my years because I've always been the student. But Sarah will always point out my strengths. She is a remarkable friend. Sarah does not enable bad behavior, but does not judge. A solid young girl and a solid adult, my appreciation is intense. Unprompted, she continues, because there's more to offer up. When I got sicker with MS, Sarah took such incredible care of me, rallied the world's greatest meal train for me, one where Reese Witherspoon, as well as Sarah's generous and glamorous and dear friends, sent over more food than I ever had the option of having in my kitchen. It was a huge help financially, as well as physically. She came to my house and arranged for me to get this amazing vibrating machine, a power plate, delivered. It was a major aid in my body recovery. Still is. Major. And that is Sarah and her connections and how she maintains such good relationships. It defines her now as much as all her stardom with Buffy. Sarah packs a punch, gets the job done, gives love, never complains. I don't know how. She continued still. Sarah arranged my COVID vaccine, for God's sake, got our kids out to the beach with new wetsuits and masks, with me in tow after a weakening transplant. She's remarkable, really. Of course, it's ingrained in me if a camera is on and she's around, I go in for a kiss. It's a joyous reference always. The delicate, poker-faced beauty who taught me to love Disneyland so fully, who knew she would be my best kiss forever. My gorgeous blonde sister, best friend SMG, did not disappoint. From helping me with my sides on that Cruel Intentions audition, to now, married to Freddie Prince Jr., the teen heartthrob who I also kissed on screen, we don't need to socialize with each other regularly even. It's just there. Sarah always makes sure. I love her so much. If there's two through lines in just about every interview I did, it's one, Buffy was exhausting, and two, Buffy could not have happened without Geller's unflappable grit, stamina, and steady hand. I uncovered a 1999 roundtable with the writers of the series ahead of season four in which Whedon attempts humor in a way that was nothing short of patronizing. Early on, we saw that Sarah can go to a deep, emotional place. She can be light and cute and all that good stuff. But she could also take you to a very dark place. And the show ended up skewing that way, he explained. We've put her through so much, and some of our mission statement for season four is to let the poor girl have some fun. We'll still make her cry and stuff, but in a funny way. It's a heartless way to speak about any actor, let alone your star, but as we know from chapters previous, it's hardly out of character. A lot of actors just think their job is to show up and hit a mark, says Geller, and I've never believed that. My job is to hit that mark precisely because otherwise the focus puller can't pull the right focus, and the boom operator is going to make a shadow and not be able to hold. And so at every point in Buffy, I tried everybody else's job for at least one scene. I tried to hold the boom for a whole scene, and my arms almost broke, and I'm pretty strong. I tried to pull focus, and it was a disaster. Like, these jobs are very difficult. Holding a steady cam for that long is extremely difficult. And so it wasn't just about the performance. I referenced Geller's work in The Body, asking if there's ever any scene from the show that she can watch with any ounce of awe at her own tour de force performance. I don't think so, she immediately shoots back. I press further, knowing there has to be at least one moment. When I rewatch the season one finale and Buffy says, I'm 16, I don't want to die, 
I was like, okay, I don't know how to improve on that. I'm okay. I'm good. But she wasn't good. She was never good. She was the best. Gustav Gustafsson was the leadman in the art department for Buffy from the start of the show. In 2000, his HIV got worse, he had to go on disability, and he died that year. The show dedicated an episode to his memory in season five. His best friend and caregiver John Paschal shared this. You know, this was back in the day when the rags were really running rampant, and I would always read about what a bitch she was or the fit that she threw. And I had an inside source, so I would ask Gustav, and he told me, I'm on the set every minute, and I've never seen anything like that. I just remember they always painted this girl as being nasty and not nice and demanding and controlling. And when Gustav got sick, it was devastating, and it was quick. We rang in the year 2000 at Cedar sinai in his hospital room. I found it really beautiful that everything I'd heard about this show and about this cast not liking each other, how they just showed up for a crew member. Sarah would come to the hospital and sit with him in his room. There was no press. Not one person knew she was there. Although there was a funny anecdote from when she was sitting at his hospital bed about a month before he died, and the bulletin board in his hospital room had a cast photo of Buffy. And one time the nurse came in, she's doing her job and stuff, and she looks over at Sarah Michelle sitting there and says, I have to tell you, you look just like that girl on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And Sarah looked up and smiled big and said, I get that a lot. And so then, in the last nine days of Gustav's life, he asked if he could come home. He knew he was going to die within a week. So I cleared out my guest room, and we brought in the hospital bed. And I have to tell you that in those nine days, Joss Whedon sent over lunch and dinner every single day, catered for like 50 people. It was very sweet. And Sarah Michelle came three more times in those last nine days. And I got the chance to have a few really nice conversations with her. When she came out of the room, she would be visibly shaken. I'm wondering if this was the first person that she knew that she saw dying day after day. And she would take me outside and say, John, what can we do? I'll do anything. I can write a check. What do you need? And I said, Sarah Michelle, you can't write a check. He's going to die within the next few days. There's nothing that anyone can do. And I said, what you're doing is so much just by being here now. And she'd listen. I said, you have no idea what it means to him that you stopped by. You're a star of a massive TV show, and you're stopping by. He's a set director. You know what I mean? He's a prop guy. And you're showing up. All right. I hope that got your whistles wet. Is it wet? W-E-T-W-H-E-T. Whistles wet. Not sure. Mm, let me know in the comments. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoyed I hope that you will consider, like I said, purchasing it. And I just have to say, do anyone out there that has ever written a book or undertaken a project of such uh, breadth in terms of like time, you know, I, I just, I'm used to, I'm, uh, I write for the internet quite often or magazines, you know, but even like the euphoria piece that I did for the cut, there was about six weeks maybe of process between like, you know, the actual shoot and it being out in the world. I'm not used to working on things for months, let alone years. And it was a very humbling process and one that was really forced me to uh, reread my thoughts over and over again. And 
adjust some accordingly and then also have to settle into um, some that, you know, I'm just, I think a lot of people can relate to this, but I'm someone who like every time I reread something that I've written, I can find a new thing to pick apart or rework. And at some point in this process, you kind of have to let things settle. And I think there's a bigger meaning to that in life, you know, that I take away from all of this about sort of like the ability to look at something you've done, not necessarily with pride, um, but a sense that what you have put out is the most complete version that it is going to be. It doesn't mean that it could not be more complete, but it's a sort of sense of settling into the reality that you have created something that is finished. It is done, it exists, it will not exist in any other form at present. Now, who's to say I won't write another book? You know, There's always going to be a next thing, but this particular thing is locked and loaded and out in the world. I also just wanna thank you all out there for putting up with me these last couple of months, I, among the many things I was less aware of in, in the world of publishing was how much um, self-promotion I would have to do. I understand why one has to do it. And it's funny, I will be honest in saying I've rolled my eyes a bit at some of my own friends' past self-promotions in similar spheres as this one. And my God, I am just, uh, I get it now. I get it. <laughs> I get it. I'm rolling my eyes at myself quite a bit these days. Anyway, thank you all so much for the support. I want to throw now to a man that I have been a fan of for a long time, since I first saw him on Broadway in the musical Passing Strange. I adore this man. I think he has a lot to offer in his talents on stage, on film, and in television, but also in how he speaks about the world and the work that he does and how meaningful that work is. So without any further ado, Let's throw to the great Coleman Domingo. Shut up, Evan. He is a true multi-hyphenate known for his work in film, on television, and on stage. Let's start with the stage credits since that is where I first discovered him. His Broadway credits include playing Billy Flynn in Chicago, an Obie award-winning performance in Passing Strange, a Tony-nominated performance in The Scottsboro Boys, and in Summer, the Donna Summer musical. He spent over two decades writing and directing for off-Broadway and regional theater productions. In film, he first appeared in Clint Eastwood's True Crime and followed that up with Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, Spike Lee's Red Hook Summer, Lee Daniels' The Butler, Ava DuVernay's Selma, Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk, Janixa Bravo's Zola, and George C. Wolfe's Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, wait, there's more. Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Oh, right, and he's currently set to take on two iconic roles. The first as Mr. in the movie musical adaptation of The Color Purple, alongside Fantasia Barino and Taraji P. Henson. And the second as civil rights activist Bayard Rustin in George C. Wolfe's Rustin. His television credits include playing Victor Strand on Fear of the Walking Dead, Dr. Russell Daniels on The Nick, and his critically acclaimed role as Ali in HBO's Euphoria, a role that won him a Hollywood Critics Association Award for Best Actor in a Limited Series. If you haven't checked out that performance, I cannot recommend it enough. He's got the voice of an angel, a red carpet style so enviable, and a body, well, let's just say the body is here. I am thrilled and delighted to welcome my friend, the great Coleman Domingo. 
First of all, I just want to start off by thanking you so much. You are such a regularly requested guest on this podcast. And so I just know our listeners are going to be so thrilled to finally have you on versus having me just talking about you. So that's- Wait a minute, uh, regularly requested? I'm, I'm regularly requested by who? By our listeners in the comment really? section, in my DMs. Yeah, people want you on. They're sliding up in your DMs being like, get Coleman Domingo on here. Yeah, I'm not lying. Real, what, what, what is the demographic? I want to know. I'm interviewing <laughs> you. What is the demographic? Who, um, who are these lover, Lovers of taste, lovers of culture, um, oh. lovers of the theater, of film, of television, you name it. Lovers of Philadelphia. Come on now. Okay, Evan. Okay, you just, you just charmed the pants off. <laughs> so, I'm still learning. I want to start by asking you, I believe you recently wrapped the whole 30. And I think that you also did, correct me if I'm wrong, Sober January. I too am on a food mindfulness journey. I'm trying not to call it a diet because there's a lot of things that come along with calling something a diet, but I'm wondering what was the food that you missed the most during that time and have you indulged in it since? Okay, we have to add this to it. I also did intermittent fasting at the same time. So intermittent fasting, dry January and whole 30. So the funny thing is, I, I think I've pretty much eaten a very Mediterranean way already. I love like meats, fish, veggies. I'm not a huge carb person, but I do like little bits of sugar, like like candy. That's the thing. I love like little candies. Like you'll always know that I, I always have a stash of like, you know, um, I don't know, Mica Nikes or something, like some childhood candy in the car. Usually I put it in places that I can't get, I, you know, when I get there, that's my treat. So I feel sneaky as I'm driving down, you know, 101 and I'm like, you know, it's popping in my mouth. So I miss that. So I, I decided to keep that stuff out of the car. And so I miss candy, you know? So if you're at the movie theater, what is your preferred candy that you're going for? Uh, I like all of it. Well, gummy bears, gummy bears and oh. um, Sour Patch Kids. Mm. I love can't sour go wrong with the Sour Patch Kid. <laughs> yeah, I love Sour Patch Kids, yeah. Yeah, and the sugar always kind of wakes you up. So if you ever have a moment in a dark theater where you start to nod off, the sugar rush really, really helps you through. It, it, does. it does, it does. From my perspective, you are having a multitude of successes. So just to name a few of them, professional successes, I should say. You have Euphoria, you have Zola, you have Candyman, you have Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, you have Fear of the Walking Dead, you have Bottomless Brunch at Coleman's, you have The Color Purple coming up, you have Bayard, the Bayard Rustin biopic coming up. It looks and sounds pretty amazing, but I'm wondering how it feels, and in particular, how it feels at this juncture of your life. Evan, that's a great question. I think it, and I can answer it pretty simply, it feels really good. It feels honestly well-earned, because I've been working for a very long time and just being um, a craftsman and doing the work, whether it's in small professional theaters, in larger spaces, television, film, commercials, you name it. I've always had a career where I pit, I, I wouldn't say that I did a pivot, but I was always available to do other things on different platforms as well. And I saw, it does feel like this is an amalgamation of like my 30 plus years working. I think I've been working for about 32 years now. And it does feel like, I just saw the small steps, man. I just saw all the little things, one foot in front of the other, each opportunity. And I could see what it's amassed to. And it's really awesome. And it's like, it's a lot of relationships that I've built. It's uh, people finally understanding what I do, and which is 
something I, I maybe I struggled with earlier in my career because I felt like people wanted to sort of put me in a box and say, you know, they, they want to put you in a box so they understand what you do. But when you're a writer, director, actor on many platforms, singer, dancer, you name it, they, they don't know what to do with you for a minute. So I created lots of opportunities for myself. And also, I, you know, I have my own production company and, you know, I, I, I pour into that. And as I pour into that, all these other things start to flower as well. Like, I think, you know, I don't know, I feel like I'm, I still feel like I'm doing what I started out doing, which is being a multi-hyphenate. And, um, but I feel like now it's on, um, I don't know, much more on people's radar. So I am having a, a good time. And I guess I do understand that I do, um, I, I hope to have integrity with all the things that I do. And that's why it seems that I'm, I'm attached to these very um, um, illuminating hit projects all over the place. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I think really maybe are. that's what I've always held for myself. I, mean, I just really, I would rather not work sometimes and wait for the right thing. And I will go create something with my company or in the theater or write something or write a musical or something until the right thing came along. And now it feels like a series of right things. You're currently in rehearsal for, and by the time this episode airs, you will have the opening of your new play, Dot, um, at the New Conservatory Theater Center, which actually is bringing you back to the Bay Area, which is really where I believe your career really began. And I'm wondering what it's like for you to sort of come back to the theater, because, you know, I've interviewed a ton of theater performers on this podcast, and many go off and do film and television and see the money that film and television affords them and kind of stay on that path. You've kind of, you know, you mentioned you're a multi-hyphenate, you really have stayed in all of these lanes. And so why was it important for you to continue with your the theatrical roots? Well, first of all, I, I began my career at the New Conservatory Theater Center um, that many years ago. Uh, in a production of The Inner Circle. It was a youth touring program um, that went all over Bay Area schools and taught kids about HIV protection and things like that. And so it's, it's like a hum homecoming coming back to do my um, play Dot um, at New Conservatory Theater. Uh, the, the, the play has been done around the country, you know, Broadway, um, you name it. I'm developing a television series out of it as well. And it's been really wonderful. I've always kept one foot in the theater. I've never strayed from it because I think that's where I live. Um, I love my work in television and film, but I'm constantly, anyone, you, you can always knock on my uh, trailer door and most people know about what I'm doing. If you ask any of my cohorts, they would say, oh, he's writing a play or a musical or he's preparing something or he's on a Zoom in a rehearsal where one of his shows are happening somewhere. And so it's just never left me. I love, I love being in those spaces. I love, you know, large or small, doesn't matter. I just, I love the theater and, and the community that it, um, that it uh, I don't know, that, that is connected to it. I, I literally was just in San Francisco for, to support my friend, uh, Sean San Jose in his theater, The Magic Theater, where he's the artistic director. And I've joined the board of directors. I'm on the board of directors of that theater, of the Vineyard Theater, of, um, I'm on the, uh, board of uh, the, the Eugene the, um, the O'Neill. Um, so that keeps me in the theater. I feel like I like to use my access now in every single way and my platform from television film to support the theater. I feel like it, and, and then I like to be a part of the theater because I feel like it, it helps ground me and really gives me and focus my, with my purpose 
Um, and I take that into television film. So I think it, there's an evident flow. This makes me think about a quote that Jake Gyllenhaal recently gave, and he was actually referencing George Clooney when he said that Clooney taught him that one of the great things about doing like some of the bigger projects that he takes on is that it then allows him afterwards to go into a smaller passion project as a result, that he sort of goes between one back and forth from one to the other to sort of create that balance. Not to say the bigger projects do not have artistic merit, but just so that he has something that's a little bit smaller and sort of that he, a little bit more tactile that he can really sink his teeth into and be a part of. And it sounds like you sort of have been able to balance that really uh, expertly. Thank you. I, I think so, because I think that it is a beautiful thing that I've been you know, doing work in television film and I have a level of uh, security, financial security now, that I can actually make some choices to do things that are not about money. And unfortunately, sometimes in the theater, yes, you are working at nonprofits that you will make a substantial amount less. And you have to do the work to do the work. You know what I mean? So I think for me, it's always about the work. and It, it doesn't matter if it's in um, a 99-seat theater or the or a 1,200-seat Broadway house. For me, it's the work. It's like, oh, if you're if you're attracted to that piece and what it's saying, you want to get into it. I mean, that, that even goes with my film career. It's like, you know, the, the film Zola I did. Zola, I think I get paid, I'm not serious, I'm pretty sure, maybe $150 a day or something like that. It was definitely a low budget independent film. There was no bells and whistles about it. We stayed in very modest places. They took care of us, A24. But there was no, there was no um, bag of money at the end of it. Or it was about like jumping off a ledge with some incredible artists and wanted to create a, a, a film that you believed in and you thought was gonna, and there was something in it for me to challenge me, to help me grow and to work with this uh, Wunderkin director, Janixa Bravo. You could, I could make those choices because I have a show that I've been on now for you know, seven seasons, Fear the Walking Dead, which has provided for me beautifully. So I can make those choices and say, oh, okay, now I, I'm gonna go do that thing because I can afford to actually. You know, you mentioned Zola, and I want to ask you about Zola, because when the Oscar nominations were announced, there were a lot of snubs, uh, most notably the great Ruth Nega for passing, but also Zola, which to me deserved performance accolades, as well as a nom for Best Picture and Best Director, as you mentioned, the great Janixa Bravo. And I'm just wondering, does that piss you off at all? It pissed me off. Well, that's, you know what, maybe I can understand it because it pisses you off. I think that you are such a, um, a passionate, ardent supporter of the arts and culture. And by someone who's in it, like I am, I think I have a very sort of sobering um, point of view about it. I understand, I'm a member of the Academy, and I understand the Academy. The reason why I've become a part of the Academy was to help move the needle and diversify it in many ways. I think plain and simple, there are a lot of people who just did not see our film. I think there's no way that you could ignore the film, especially when, you know, we've been nominated for the most uh, film independent uh, awards, seven independent, independent spirit awards, and all these other, you know, you know, personally I've been nominated for what, like 13 awards as well, which has been wonderful, one of you. But it's amazing to me that, does it piss me off? It doesn't piss me off, it disappoints me that, that there are some members that just don't even bother to click on our film, a film that they think that they have nothing, there's nothing for them. Um, 
which is strange. That's part of like, you know, re-educating and re- uh, relearning that the academy has to do. Because, you know, I think a lot of times, and I'm not going to, you know, say anything about disparaging by anyone who's nominated because I feel like it's, these are things that are just like beyond my control. But I think a lot of times people go for a name that they understand or recognize. Um, I think that someone like, I'll just say outside of myself, I would say a person like Janixa Bravo, it would have been nice. I think, you know, it, even for screenplay, it would have been nice to give her that boost and um, that sometimes is just needed. You just need that knife in the fight to differ, differentiate you. As you're the same director you were, the same brilliant director, but if you've got a little bit more of a knife in the fight, that helps. Um, for me, the nominations came out. I woke up, I saw them. I said, okay, well, that's that. And I went in my office and got to work. I got, a, I got on the phone with a, a producer and we're working on a film that I'm co-writing and we got, we got back to work and that's all I can do. If I, it, it doesn't rattle me anymore, strangely enough. I just know, like, I'm like, I'm gonna keep coming. You could, you, could, you could either amplify my work or not, but I'm gonna keep working. And that's, <laughs> and that, that's sort of my, my big old, <laughs> to you, Academy. For what it's worth, I mean, Zola is the film that people were talking about for months and months and months. No disrespect to some of the other projects that are out there. I, like you, am not going to disparage anyone else's work, but I think at the end of the day, Euphoria and Zola share something in common in becoming really a part of the cultural conversation. And that to me, in so many ways is bigger than awards. And so, yes, I remain pissed off that it was not nominated for the reasons that you mentioned, sort of the amplification of these artists that worked on it. But I think that its resonance was felt and it is not a project that will be forgotten. Yes, and I'm gonna add to that. I think that I joined the league of many other artists who sort of have been quote unquote snubbed, but you can't deny their long lasting effects. Like let's say Spike Lee's do the right thing. There's, a, there's so many films and filmmakers, you name it, artists. Like I remember when I found out that Diana Ross had never won, uh, I think a Grammy, and then they gave her an honorary one or something. You're like, wait a minute, after her whole career, wait, what do you mean she's never won? That doesn't make any sense. But but her longevity is the award, you know? Also, there's something to be said about not winning. I mean, there was a queen that recently went home on RuPaul's Drag Race and everyone is up in arms about it. And from my perspective, I'm like, the fact that everyone's so mad about her exit just goes to show you that, like you mentioned, she's going to have the longevity. It's like the fact that people are mad when you're not nominated, that's a good thing. I think so too. I think people are going to buy even more tickets to see my work. They're going to be there. They're going to like, they're going to rally for me. I have to have a lot of people a lot of ambassadors to my work right now saying like, he was robbed, he was snubbed. I like that spirit. Yeah, fight for me. Fight for me. <laughs> Get mad. Yeah, I love that. Before we continue, let's take a break and check in with today's sponsors. If you were to look in my fridge right now, beneath the shelf of Topo Chico, you would find cases of Can. These are my currently in rotation batch as I keep party packs stowed away as well. So what is Can? Can is a social tonic microdosed with cannabis that gives you a light and uplifted buzz, but with no hangover, fewer empty calories, all natural ingredients, and no regrets. Best of all, it tastes fucking good. So sure, I drink it for the THC CBD effects, but I also just enjoy it as a refreshment du jour. Blood Orange Cardamom is my favorite, but the Grapefruit Rosemary also slaps. For more information, including where to find it at your local dispensary and delivery options, follow at DrinkCan with two N's or head to DrinkCan.com. That's D-R-I-N-K-C-A-N-N.com. 
And we're back. Let's go back to young Coleman growing up in Philadelphia. I'm curious how you would describe your early life. Wow, you're going Barbara Walters style on me. Let's see. Hello. How do I describe my, my early life? I would say happy. Uh, I grew up very working class family in Philadelphia uh, with um, older brother, older sister, and a younger brother. Um, my mother with my stepfather. Um, I pretty much had a very sort of nuclear household. My dad left the picture when I was about eight years old. He was just off doing his own thing. And my mother remarried my stepfather, who really gave us some grounding. And we were the family in West Philly that sat together at six o'clock around the table, like the Waltons. Um, we were called in for dinner and we all, we had a ritual. We had dinner, pop at the head of the table, mom at the other end, and we talk about our days and just come together. And so I feel like I was, I had a, this very sweet growing up. I don't know, when I, when I look at my, my childhood, it feels like Mayberry or something, but in the inner city. You know, I didn't grow up, and it's funny, because I grew up in inner city West Philadelphia, and I did not grow up around, at least to my eyes, around like overt drugs and crime. I'm sure it was there, but it wasn't the, the way inner cities are depicted. You know, I, I had neighbors who had houses, and, down the shore. So we would go to, you know, I would go down to Cape May with them during in the summer or Wildwood or something like that. And we were, you know, just people were like, you know, kids went to school and, you know, neighbors looked after you when you weren't doing right or questioned you like nosy Miss Rogers. We used to call her nosy Miss Rogers because she was in everybody's business where she would lean her head out and say, what are you doing? Like, you know, you were not supposed to be hanging out with certain little boys. You, yeah. Where, where, where's your mother? You know, and so she would like school me and like, I'll be afraid of her. And she would say, you need to get in the house. Did you do your homework? I'm like, so I have neighbors looking after me. So I grew up like that. And I think it was, um, I don't know, I think, I think it was a happy kid, um, a nerdy kid. I, I played with Legos most of the time and read comic books and was always at the library after school. And then I had a very tiny group of friends because I was a weirdo. I'm curious if you recall the first time you saw a gay person in pop culture, because, you know, I think about shows like Euphoria now, which are just rife with LGBTQ plus characters. There's a scene early on in season two, and it's just Nate walking through a party and there's just these two guys making out or thinking about Cal's backstory episode, which let me tell you, was some hot stuff, but, <laughs> but that's today. But 10, 15, 20 years ago, et cetera, uh, media depictions of LGBTQ people not only were less than they are now, they were very limited in their scope of representation. And so I'm just curious, like sort of what were the gay or queer characters that you were seeing when you were growing up? And did any of them have any resonance with you, for you? You know what? I feel like the only, I feel like I honestly, it's a great question because I don't remember seeing any, anyone who I thought represented me on television. I think that we were always, if we were, it was sort of a joke. It was sort of a, a, a character dressed like a, a little too effeminate and with a scarf on and things like that. And it was such an extreme stereotype that I didn't connect with. I didn't think, oh, I have something to do with that. I don't know what that is. That was like, so that was like extreme. There was extremes of like, you know, there's black extremes as well, you know, of like tropes of black people and stuff. So it felt like extreme. I, you know what, I started to find representations of myself in books. I would go down to 
a bookstore called Giovanni's Room when I was a teenager. There's a street in Philadelphia, 13th Street, and that's where all the gay stuff was. And so I would go down there. I remember I would go in Giovanni's Room and I would, I would be terrified, go just walking into Giovanni's Room, which is named after Baldwin's um, novel. And I'd go in there and, you know, I, just, I can visualize it now. It just made me have a great memory of like, you know, the older guy at the counter or whatever, and just looking at me, but just looking away and just so nervous in it. And I remember I wanted to see things like magazines and see our bodies. And I, but yet still I would take like psychology today and like, yeah, I, I would put like, you know, whatever book that had some risque male nudes in it and put it inside there and look at it, even though I'm in a gay bookstore and I'm like, oh my God. And then put it away. You know? <laughs> or, or it was like, there was a lot of gay erotica actually. Um, and I, and when I worked at, I, I used to work at Barnes and Noble bookstore downtown in Philadelphia. And I would, I would take care of the self-help section and the travel section. And then I would go over to the gay literature and there was some erotica. And it's funny, that was my first examples of like finding myself in literature because they were complex and they were, these people had thoughts and ideas and then they were attracted to each other and it built up in my mind what it was. So those are my first representations. I, I, I know for sure I didn't see any representations on television, which is why, I'm, I'm, to be honest, even just talking about it now, right now, I know, I'm so happy and proud of where my career is and the work that I'm doing right now, because it is not suffering tropes in any way. I know that I'm sort of like expanding, um, you know, entertainment's view and world's view on what gay people can play. I know that I don't, I don't just play gay characters, but I would gladly play a gay character if it's complex and interesting and has a great story in the center of it. But I also play all these other things as well. And I'm not marginalized um, in a way that I was afraid of when I first came into this industry in about what, 1991. But then I had significant moments like Ellen coming out and things like that and that, you know, Will and Grace and was transforming it. And then I, I knew that I could, at least I could have some faith that I can be exactly who I am and not hide anything. Cause you know, for me, hiding something makes it seem like it's wrong. I said, I never even, thought about hiding it. Like people are like, oh, you're gonna be out? I am out. So it's funny to me that, I know you didn't ask this, but leaning into this, because just, it was just talking about representation on television, just three weeks ago, I was never more pissed off in my entire life when a fellow member of the LGBTQIA community did a post on BuzzFeed, and yes, I'm calling out BuzzFeed, on BuzzFeed, it wasn't the fact that the title said, I had no idea that Coleman, I, I just found out that Coleman Domingo was gay, but it had a yellow, it was written in yellow, gay, with the cast of the Euphoria, and an arrow pointed to me, this shit gay and over. And I was deeply offended, because it felt violent, actually. It felt like, I was like, what is this, McCarthyism? I actually, so I went and DM'd him. And I was like, do you understand what you're doing and how you're doing this? It's like, okay, I'm sorry you didn't know that I was gay. I've been openly gay my entire career. All you had to do was a tiny bit of research 
There's been articles written about me and my husband. There's, there's been plays written about me and my coming out story. There's been articles and mentions out magazine. You know, it, for years I've been in out 100. I'm playing Bayard Rustin <laughs> in a Netflix film when I talk about being an openly gay man playing an openly gay man. So for my money, it it was it it didn't feel right in the way I was sort of being looked at. It was like you didn't it was being pointed at. And it felt like I'm like, you're no doing no different than people who tried to um, I don't know, try to out us and things like that. It felt it it didn't it, I felt violated. And um, and they quickly corrected it within I must they quick they corrected it within about 30 minutes. They, everyone they got on it and did, they were removing it and putting a different picture up in a new title, et cetera, et cetera. And because I was like, do you understand what you're doing? I said, this is not right. And this is, and the, the whole point of it, why I'm saying this is because the whole point is I have been out my entire career and me being out on television and film is very important to me. So to call it out in that way, as if it's arresting for the right. world. Well, it's like, this writer's framing it because it's new information to the writer. They're framing it as new information for the world when it's just only new information for them. But I want to applaud you for reaching out to this writer and correcting the record and not just sitting there and taking it and saying, actually, wait, I'm actually reading the content that you're putting out about me and let me weigh in on who, who I am and let me tell you who I am versus you telling the world who you think I am. And that's it. I've always been a proponent of that. I've always believed in telling my own story before someone else can tell it. Which is why I'm always in, I feel like I try to be in control of my own narrative because I'm like, yeah, otherwise people will fuck it up. Especially knowing like I have so many things that I could be in someone else's eyes, whether they know from the inner city, they know that my, my dad's an immigrant, they know that I'm married to an immigrant. It's like, you can frame it whatever way you want, but I'm gonna tell you first. And I've always put it out there first. So therefore I didn't understand, it felt like a hit, <laughs> you know, like a mafia hit. Well, unlike that writer who does not know you, I want to bring someone into the conversation who does know you, a friend of yours and a former co-star. That is the great Jody Turner-Smith. Coleman, you elevate everything that you're in. I'm curious as to what is your thought process when selecting roles? Is there a larger, grander plan that you have for yourself? Or are you just flying by the seat of your instinct? Well, thank you, Jody Turner-Smith, for that question. And I do have an answer, a very clear answer, is that I do choose the roles that I think scare me a bit, that I feel like I'm connected to, and I'm not really sure how to do it. I look at the whole of it. I look not only of the role, but also the filmmaker or the theater company or the network, you name it. I look at everything that is just surrounded, not just the role. Because for me, I really, I, I truly mean it. I wanna love everyone that I, I work with. I wanna know that there's a possibility of that love, that I'm gonna have the time in my life. I'm gonna make some new colleagues and friends. Uh, we're gonna spend so much time together. I, I don't want you to be an asshole. So I think about that too. <laughs> <laughs> so I think about all that, all of that goes into it. Um, basically, because I feel like, you know, we, we spend so much time together. I just wanna make sure that I'm gonna have a, a life affirming experience. Mm. That's what's important. 
Not satisfied with one question, she wanted to ask one more. Burning question. Who do you want to work with next? Ooh, that's a great question. Who do I want to work with next? Huh. I think I would like to work with someone like Marcus Rosese. Hmm. I also think that I would like to work with, I don't know, I feel like I would like to work with Meryl Streep. I would like to have like some sort of romance with Meryl Streep in a film. <laughs> or like do something weird or do some weird comedy with her. Um, I also feel like, who else would I like to work with? I feel like there's a few people. I love um, a, a Meryl Streep, Coleman Domingo romance. Like, right? Geez, Isn't please. that just wild? Isn't that just wild? Yes. And I also think I would like to work with, um, I don't know, someone like Paul Thomas Anderson. I love all of this. Perhaps a Scorsese film with Meryl Streep that's produced by Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, I'm just, I'm just putting the pieces together in real time. That sounds good. And Jody had one other comment. Oh my God! And just uh, as an aside, I am so excited to watch you traumatize me in your performance of Mr. <laughs> in the Color Purple. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, thank you, dear Jody. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if there, as though there couldn't be any more, she actually passed the phone over to her beautiful husband, Joshua Jackson, who also has a question for you. All right, this is my question for Coleman. You find such amazing humanity in your characters, whether they need to be terrifying or hilarious. Do you build from the outside in or from the inside out to make these men human? Wow. That's a great question, Josh. Oh, thanks, babe. Oh, that's so sweet of Josh. Thank you, Josh. I think I'm in the process right now with the color purple of, I think I generally build from the inside out and a bit of the outside in at the same time. I come at it. I do a lot of research about time period. I do a lot of research. I do a lot of research on like the music that was being played, and, you know, style of this and where the trains run and all that, everything. I do all this research that no one will ever know or most likely care about or see. But it makes sense for me to build the world around a character and figure that stuff out. And then I try to find, I try to, I, I always try to find the thing that I love about the character or I admire about the character, even if they're a villain. Let's say characters like X and Mista. I think that it, like for X in particular, I can like Mister hold off, I'm still in process and trying to figure that out. But X in particular, the moment I, in all my research and with the Twitter feed and all that, and I found out that he was an immigrant, I thought, oh, it was very interesting for me to tell his story from an immigrant point of view. That he's, this is what he has to have agency in the world, which is um, trafficking women, which is terrible. But he wants what everyone else has. He wants to take care of his fiance, he wants to have a good living, he wants the American dream like everyone else. That's how I find the humanity in him. I find that he's, I went to look at his um, charisma and his intelligence and his wit and how he uses that 
to gain what he wants, whether it's access or money, you name it, or power. So that's the, those are the things that I found about someone who I think is objectively, Coleman thinks that X is pretty disgusting, but X thinks he's pretty amazing. So, <laughs> so that's the way I do it. So that's why I say who goes from inside to outside and outside and, and then somewhere we meet and have this great alchemy in the middle and it just takes over. I know you mentioned that you're sort of in the process right now with Mr. But is there anything you can share about sort of process wise where you're at and how that's going? Just because it's so rare to have the opportunity to speak with an actor about a role that we're all familiar with, but that you're going to be reinterpreting. I'll tell you this. There's something I did not tell my director today that, and I couldn't figure out what it was, but you know, I just finished shooting Rustin maybe about two months ago, and I had a couple months off. And I've been in prep for The Color Purple. And in my prep, I was just doing some research, you know, the source material, reading the book again. But I haven't done a deep dive into the emotional life. I sort of like looked at it, made some bullet points about it, made some broader statements about it, what I think it is. But it almost feels like something that I'm not afraid to touch, but I know that once I get in there, it's going to be hard to get out for a moment. So I'm almost staying away from it. I'm still in prep for another month. And then once cameras roll, I feel like I know I'm going to get closer and closer. But I have to do things and experience things that have a lot to do with trauma, his own trauma, traumatic situations with these women, with his children. And I think that I'm actually just, a, I, I don't want to use the word afraid of it. I'm not afraid of it, but I'm almost, I'm almost um, weary of getting too close too soon. Funny you say weary. That was the word that was coming to mind as you were saying you don't yeah. want to say, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. That, that, that's it, Evan. It feels like, and, and we're getting too close too soon because once I'm there, I have to stay there in his truth in that way. Mm. And so um, I haven't been as deeply into it yet. And I, I did some scenes, maybe did some rehearsals and I already feel it bubbling. I'm like, oh, this is, yeah, I gotta keep this away from me for a moment so I can actually live in this place of religious prepping and look at the psychological things and my research and all that stuff. And then once it's game on, it's game on. <laughs> so no, I have to say, I'm not the biggest fan of talking to actors about process typically, because sometimes it can be a little esoteric, but the way you just explained it just now, it makes so much sense. And um, that weariness you described, I, I really felt that as you were saying it, and it, it, it was very illuminating. So I thank you for sharing that. Can't get enough of Shut Up Evan? I don't blame you. That's why you have to check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Shut Up Evan, where you will be able to find advanced access to interviews, bonus episodes, video clips from the interviews, cut for time questions, and so much more. You don't want to miss out. I am fully committing to making the Patreon a much more robust experience for season three. So again, www do people say you know www.patreon.com forward slash shut up evan let's talk about euphoria i recently had the opportunity to profile the six leading ladies of the show and i learned so much about it's fantastic by the way thank you thank you and i learned so much about the rigorous 
process that is creating this show. Um, Euphoria is a nine-month shooting process, which is already incredibly long, but made even more remarkable by the fact that it's only eight episodes being shot. So it's really right. quality focused and less quantity focused. And my goodness, I mean, just hearing about the day-to-day -day, uh, of this show, it, it's quite remarkable like how much goes into it. I mean, a version that I was had to watch because I was watching screeners in advance, I was seeing all of the dollies in the frames and getting to sort of watch the camera maneuver, which was such a thrill. And, you know, I got to watch episode five without a lot of the special effects added in. So that was just so neat. I'm, I'm curious what it's like for you, you know, as the actor on that show to work on something that's so made so both meticulously and um, delicately. Mm, that's a great question, Evan. It is, it is a great dance and you realize that maybe that's why I work so hard on the scripts beforehand. Um, it's not, they're not the scripts that you can just say, oh, let me learn these lines real quick and get into it. You need to figure out the beats and know a lot of what you're doing so that you can be malleable for Sam's direction and also for the camera, because the camera is another actor. It's not like a camera's just gonna be in sticks and just capturing you here in a close-up and here in an over. It's like, no, the camera's moving around here. You gotta figure out how to act when a camera's, camera, you're stepping in here, camera's doing this, and wanna come around, swing around, and go over to you, blah, 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 and they come back and then pull up while you're acting. So you have to like be ready for that. So your lines, you gotta have down. Your actions, you gotta let down. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I want. I know what happens if I don't get it. And now I have to let the cameras do what they're doing and be highly technical at the same time while also getting the acting out there. So it's a great tricky dance. And I think it's almost like a, its own conservatory of Levinson and, and uh, Marcel Rev. You know, it's like, because it is unique and its form and the way uh, you have to be um, masterful at being able to convey your actions, your text, and also um, hit those marks because they're just as precise. And it's all, but once you do know that it's part of the storytelling, it's not irritating or annoying. You're like, oh no, no, I have to do that because that's gonna give me that, that moment here. That's what he wants on that line. Technically he wants you to turn here so you can rack focus on that line. So you know the shape of the scene in Sam's amazing eye. He will help you figure out, oh yeah, can you turn your head here? It's not because he wants to limit your, your place to move, but he's like, if you turn here, that's gonna help land that part of the story. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes <laughs> a ton of sense. You share the bulk of your scenes with Zendaya and we as the audience, we all see Rue, uh, but you are in the room with Rue and you are someone Rue is interacting with and, and pushing back against. The $64,000 question is, what's in the suitcase? School books. Ah, uh, is that why you're in that getup? You became an honor student. I'm not in the mood for a lecture. Lecture? I like to think we have conversations. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Okay, what, did a hornet crawl up your ass or something? What's wrong with you? Look, man, I'm not trying to hear a fucking lecture, okay, about how my life would be better if I stopped doing drugs or believed in God or Allah or whatever the fuck. Okay, well, you're the one looking like a Jehovah's Witness. I just don't think that there's uh, Bibles in that suitcase. <laughs> Excuse me? Don't play that shit with me. I've always accepted you for who you are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, some parent you can just treat like shit. Yeah, well, good thing nobody's really looking to be a parent. I'm just wondering what it's like watching Zendaya transform 
into Rue because, you know, I spent two days observing her and she could not be more- Lovely. Yeah, she's, she's lovely. She's lovely. You know, she's been doing this since she was a kid. And so I think she does know, have that, um, I don't know, that, that, um, that instinct, that impulse to know how to turn it on and turn it off. I think she and I, we could sit around talking, laughing about things, music, you name whatever, whatever's happening in politics or society. And then we'll both drop in and I will see her, her face change, her body change, her body language. She knows the character and she knows, and she helps physicalize it. She's a full bodied actor in that way. And I think similar to myself, and that's the only way I know how to tell a story too. And so I think that we just, um, she's very generous. That's the word that I'm gonna use. She's a very generous actor, very giving, and she doesn't have things set in stone, which is what I love. She's very available. So it's not, she has learned her lines and knows her actions in the scene. But then we come with her, it's not like she's got this preconceived notion on the shape of the scene. She listens and responds and we go. I think that's why we, we have such a great time with each other because we just are available to each other and being very honest and raw. So she's one of my favorite scene partners to be honest. I want to ask you about a scene from episode six in particular. It's at the dinner table. It's a fantastic scene. And, and Gia is sort of, Gia played by Storm Reed is sharing her apprehension with accepting Rue as the, uh, Rue's journey to sobriety. And basically she brings up the fact that I believe it's 5% of uh, drug addicts are able to successfully recover. And she kind of points to the fact that there's a very high chance that Rue will in fact relapse, but you, your character Ali brings up the fact that all we can do is hope. Uh, and that hope is sort of the thing that, that Gia can do and has to sort of find in herself. And I'm just wondering what it was like uh, filming that scene because coming after episode five, when we really went down the on a journey with Rue, um, I felt something cathartic watching that scene play out and, and what you brought to it and the warmth that Ali brings to that family. And I'm wondering what it was like filming that. Well, we shot all those scenes out in one day in that episode because I had to get back to my other show <laughs> through The Walking Dead. So Sam was like, I'm sorry, but we gotta, we gotta shoot it all in one day. Let's, let's get at it. And I know that I didn't know, there's something that I do. There are times when I don't read the whole script because I think it may be useful for me to not know everything, but just know the given circumstances. I didn't know how hard the fight was with uh, Nia's character and Storm's character. Zendaya. I know that there was a fight. I didn't know that they, they was fighting and pushing and kicking doors and all this. I didn't know that they tore the house up. I didn't know any of that. All I knew was that Ali had a conversation with Rue and Rue sounds like she's on the road to uh, recovery. And so he comes over. I think the agreement is like, he said, can I come over and make dinner? Just a gesture to come over and make dinner. So that's all I knew. So I think that's why I knew I can come in with a laugh and a smile. I have no idea what they experienced. All I knew was my intention was I'm coming just to make dinner because I think you and your family has been having a hard time. He also knows that there's no, they don't have a father figure in the house. 
And he thought, hey, let me just come and make dinner. That's all, that's all his intention was. And then he's met with, you know, the people in the rooms. And we, it was just warm. But when we filmed it, we just, we laughed a lot. And they kept saying, oh my gosh, it's so good to have you here. So different the way you're shooting this. Because I, and I was like, all I know is shooting with Zendaya or like these very sort of stationary scenes. I don't have scenes that are wild and camera moves and people running and crazy and, you know, pheromones and testosterone running amok. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, I think, so I'm like, I didn't understand what was so different, but that, oh, Coleman's here. Oh, this is so good. Oh, because when Ali's there, he provides some levity, some peace, some quiet. We can actually play some scenes with some silences. And so that's what we do. When we got around the table, we were laughing and talking so much. We were laughing a lot, telling jokes. I'm pretty silly. So is Nika. And then Sam would call action, or sometimes he wouldn't even call action. He would just let us know, okay, camera's rolling. We would start talking, laughing, vibing off of everything. Characters, whatever, I'm like, why are you messing with my food? Why, you, you don't like it, uh, Gia? You don't like what I made? So I would say things like that, we'd laugh, I don't know. Well, and then we would go into the scene that way. So we already had it underneath us to actually just listen and respond. So that's, what, that's the beauty of the way we work and work as a unit, that everyone, made that agreement. Um, you know, acting is a, make, is, is a bunch of agreements. That's what it is. And we all made the same agreement that we're going to, we know the language, we know our actions, know what we all want, but we also know that it has to be um, sort, of, uh, a, sort of a scene of a family. It, it, it is that brief moment of actually like a, a nuclear family. And I just want to give a shout out to Nika King. It's one of the more understated performances on the show. So I think it can be easily overlooked, but like that performance is so grounded and you feel so deeply for her. It's, it's really remarkable. I mean, every actor on the show, but I think she really deserves a spotlight. Um, one, one of my favorite moments, I'm just point this out to one of my favorite moments is when she's just, I think it's episode five at the very end she just lifts her head up and says, Rue, it tore me apart. If I want people to recognize the detail and the level of craftsmanship that it took for that little moment. Beautiful, Nika. I could not agree with you more. I could not agree with you more. That moment is so, if she says a million things with just one things. word. I completely agree. It, it's acting. Um, let me ask you this. There's a meme going around right now that's kind of positions as it's as gay people, which of the six leading ladies are you? Which character? If you were to say which of the six lead characters Coleman Domingo is most like, uh, which of them would it be? <laughs> which, oh, it wouldn't be Cassie. It wouldn't be uh, who would I be? Not Cat. I, I, <laughs> I'm probably a little bit of a, I'm probably a little Lexi. I'm a little bit of Lexi. You know, it's the theater roots right there. It's a theater observer. I was a bit of a, you know, shy kid or whatever, but, but I knew how to tell the story and tell it mm. in a very extraordinary way. If they ever do an episode where actors swap characters, I would really be into the idea of you being Lexi for an episode. I think that could be really fun. <laughs> I want to be um, Lexi or Fesco. I, or Fesco. Mm, I love Fesco. Fesco. Down for either. Um, you quite famously met your husband, Raul, via Craigslist, via a Craigslist misconnection, which it should be noted is very iconic behavior. 
And I'm wondering what are your memories of the Craigslist misconnection section? I feel like for gay men of a certain age, like ourselves, we remember a time when this was a life source. This was sort of the opportunity to connect with others. And I think about technology today and Grindr and all these things and how easy it is to create connection. But back in the day, you had to work for it. And I feel like something about that work is lost with the current generation of gays coming up for all of the wonderful advances that have been made. And so I'm just wondering about your memories of the Craigslist misconnection. Well, first of all, I'll give you the memories of Craigslist misconnection. But I, I remember I was looking at a friend, this is some years ago. Um, he was showing me his Tinder profile and like how you can swipe. And I was just like, what? So, so wait, as it, we swipe, swipe. And then he was swiping, oh, wait, well, that guy was good. He was like, oh, he's gone. I'm like, wait, that's it? And I was so confused. And then I was like concerned, but wait, but I'm like, well, what if that was your person? And you just quickly swiped. I said, that, that's heartbreaking. And because I'm like, my experience was, I think it was the romantic in me, believing that I'll find someone, I'll meet someone on the street, in a library, in a restaurant. We would exchange glances. And the thing about misconnections was you could exchange glances and then have a forum where you can say, I saw you on the BART train. You looked at me, I didn't look back. I got off at Fremont, blah, 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 whatever, because San Francisco, that's what all the San Francisco references. So that was the romantic part of you. You're like, oh my gosh, I read them. Usually I would read them because I thought it was so beautiful. I never thought anyone would write one for me. I, I never even placed one. But I was so hopeful with this interaction that I had, because I used to read them all the time. And I thought it was truly one of those connections where I hoped. And then that hope turned into real action. And I saw that my now husband posted a Craigslist misconnection pad for me, described me to a T and we met up a couple of days later. I told him I loved him that night um, because I did, I knew it was love. And we've been together now for 17 years. So I, I believe that, I, I think it, because it's still a bit more analog. It's not really digital. It's still analog. Like you said, you have to do the work. You gotta go find it. You gotta scroll through it. You gotta click on it. You gotta send a response. There's no swiping and this and quick. And, and also, which is kind of cool, because I'm like, you don't even need, you don't need, all you know is a, a feeling and maybe a look. I don't even remember what, exactly what he looked like. But I knew the feeling. Mm. It wasn't like, oh, this high sexual preference, all this stuff laid out. I didn't know any of that stuff. You had to go and do what? Take a chance. And that's, what something, that's something I think like people I know now, I'm like, you got to take a chance, man. You, you can't just, they can't all be laid out. It's, it's not going to be all on paper. It won't be. I just don't think so. I never believed that. I'm so old school in that way. And I'm glad that I am. I'm very analog. I also think about how many people put themselves in a box with what they think they are seeking and are not open to the opportunity that the thing that they actually maybe need is not something that they are comprehending at the time because they don't know. Um, I want to tip my hat to you. 17 years is nothing to scoff at. That is incredible. I've been with my boyfriend now for about four years, and I find that what I love most about him tends to change at various intervals of our relationship. I don't know if you feel the same, but I'm wondering what you love most about your husband today. Hmm. You're going to make me cry. I love his kindness. 
He's got such a gentle heart. And I call him my animal. He's sort of my cat. He calls me his cat as well. And he's really just such a beautiful human being. He's always willing to grow, to say he's wrong, to try something new. He is that person that I think, I guess my mother hoped for all her kids to find someone who really helps you become your better, better self. Someone who's interested in your growth and you're interested in their growth. That's him. I think he's just, he's, um, he's a very gentle human being and he's really, um, the way he looks after me. Um, even like we were driving to Big Sur and he does things like, you know, he makes sure that, you know, he'll make sure he opens up my, my water and gives me water or a bar to eat or something. He's very concerned about, I'm like, hey, you can lay back. I know it's a long ride, but lay, lay back. No, I want to stay up with you. He, if I'm driving and I'm doing all the driving, he'll stay up with me and energize himself to be there with me. So he's really, truly a partner. And yeah. Hmm. It's incredible. Before we continue, let's take a quick break and hear from some of our sponsors. Can we talk about Sunday Riley? Not only is it the name of not one, but two of my favorite Buffy the Vampire Slayer characters, it also just so happens to be one of my favorite skincare brands. Sunday Riley uses advanced, clinically proven ingredients blended with balancing botanicals for non-irritating, fast-acting formulas. Just because the end of times might be near doesn't mean you can't have great skin. Some of my current obsessions include their global best-selling Good Genes All-in-One Lactic Acid Treatment, CEO 15% Vitamin C Brightening Serum, and their Autocorrect Brightening and Depuffing Eye Contour Cream. As a person with notoriously puffy eyes, the last one is a really saving grace. If you want to visibly improve the look and feel of your skin, look no further than Sunday Riley. Sunday Riley is available at Sephora and Sephora.com. And we are back. You lived in New York City for, I believe, 16 years. I'm sure you had a gay night or two or 2,000. Do you have any particularly fond memories of gay nightlife? I'm just infinitely yes. fascinated by gay nightlife. Yes, all of it. Are you kidding me? Well, when I used to um, work at, I used to work at a place called the 55 Bar on Christopher Street, which was a, a little jazz bar, but it's right next to Stonewall. And the most beautiful thing is I would take breaks every so often. I'm like, oh, I need to go get my K on. And I would just go across the street. <laughs> with my, you know, you're in there, jazz music, stuff like that. And you're like, oh, Tuesday night is um, disco night. Let me go over to the Monster. I would go in. This would, I would go in for like a good, I would have like a 10-minute plan. I would take a 10-minute break, go in, pay the fee, get in there, go to the dance floor, kill it for like about three songs, put some money into the, the strippers' G-strings, have a whole night, and then get back over to, um, to work the rest of my shift. I, oh, I know how to do it. I would, and I, I've done this <laughs> do it all the time, and I loved it. But also, nightlife in New York, um, I think back when nightlife was about going and meeting people, and I don't know. I feel like there were more places to actually meet people. I, th I don't know if people actually meet people at bars and clubs anymore. They go out with their people, and and if they want to meet somebody, they get on an app and look at a person who's literally across the bar and go on the app and see if they're on it instead of actually just going across and meeting somebody. Even if it's not like a romantic thing, but just say, hey, that's when we found community as gay people. And so I miss that. I really did. I love, I had a very healthy nightlife. I loved going dancing and I loved just being out. I really did. 
I don't do that so much anymore. Yeah, yeah. You don't do that so much anymore. No, well, it's a bit more, to be honest, it's a bit more difficult because I feel like, I, you know, what I look like putting some money in a, someone's doctor's draft now. People are like, oh, that's common to me. Oh, I love you and euphoria. That's it. You, certain things you, you can't do anymore. You know what I mean? Because it's like, because there's so much put on it instead of you just being a guy who wants to have fun and be entertained and dance up a storm and sweat. You have to, you know that there's eyes on you now, so you can't do all those things. So I have Friday, me and Raul, we have Friday night dance parties at home and we'll turn on some music and kill it and invite some friends over, you know? What's your current song of choice during your Friday night dance parties? Do you have a current sort of song in rotation? I do actually, it's right here. It's um, cause I actually played it earlier and I'm gonna play it for you. It's called, I wanna thank you. Wait, I'm gonna play it for you because it's so good. Felicia Myers, do you know the song? In a way, it sounds like a gospel song, but it's not. It's an 80s club song. It goes, I want to thank you, Heavenly Father, for shining your light on me. Wow, I love that. Thank you so much. That was such a treat. Um, okay, a couple last questions before I let you go. You have been lucky enough to be a part of a number of projects, perhaps most notably Selma, but there are really so many on your resume. I mean, I'm even thinking of Euphoria, and I'm going to borrow a turn of phrase from you, actually. Uh, projects in which you've been able to turn the dial on humanity. I watched an old interview of, your, of yours, and, and you said just that, and it really resonated for me. And I'm wondering what pieces of media turned the dial on your humanity when you were coming of age. I would say, um, what is his name? Um, the, uh, there was a documentary, of, well, there's a book called Brother to Brother and uh, by uh, Essex Hemphill. Again, it's books, it's always books with me. Um, that changed me, that helped me. I remember Paris is Burning as well. I saw Paris is Burning when I was what, 18? And for the first time I saw more of my tribe. I thought, oh, these are my people. We live, you know, they're not on the shadows. They're now at the Ritz movie theater downtown. These are my people and I've got to find them. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think, you know, that piece of media was a profound shift for me. Um, I knew I had to, it sort of had to move me out of just living in Philadelphia and being, and not really fully being myself. So after college, I knew it was, it was I'm, honestly, I remember that movie significantly because I knew that like, oh, after college, I gotta, I gotta move, I gotta go somewhere else. And that's when I moved to San Francisco. I moved to not only be an artist, but to really be myself and not be, not just be someone's son or brother, but also just find who I am. Um, and so I think, Definitely, that was a, a major thing for me. Um, when was the yeah. last time you watched Paris is Burning? Because I actually, I revisited it, I think maybe two or three years ago, and it oh, still slaps. Oh, yeah, it's so brilliant. Um, everything, whatever name, what a pep, is it Pepe La Beja is sitting there saying, you know, oh, I love my mother's, my mother's gal, you know, but she, 
she uh she burned up my dress, my fur coat. She burned up my fur coat. I mean, I like I like I can, I can visualize it because I felt like, ooh, these old, old queens, you know, living full lives that lots of stories. I watched it about two or three years ago as well. And it's still a world because I don't know what I think is so great about watching that is that we are, it's not great. I don't want to use the word great, but we watch the whole generation of people right above me. They are no longer here. They were decimated by the AIDS pandemic. And you know, people actually literally my age, because I came of age into my sexuality when I was 17, 18 years old in the middle of the AIDS pandemic. And I had to figure out how to figure this out, how to take care of myself, how to protect myself, how to, you know, protect others, you name it. And I think that uh, I do recognize that we, we are the leaders of that. We're, we're that generation. We're the ones to, to teach the others in the way. So I don't know. So I think that, I don't know. I think that I just, uh, I don't even know where I got, why I got to that, but you just made, you just made me think of that about this lost generation. Can I actually ask you, cause you're making me think, um, do you ever marvel and look around and think from where we were? When I say we, I mean our community and where we are today, it's, it's remarkable in both in, in so many senses of the word, because it's both incredibly incredible and incredibly sad all the same. It is because I think that in many ways, how can I say it? I think just, but it's just a, a symptom of our country and our culture, how we have amne collective amnesia. And that a lot of young kids don't even know who took the hits for you to, be here, for you to be, for you to, for you to argue justifiably about pronouns. But for older gays, I know that that's probably not even a concern most of the time. Or like, I was just trying to get basic human rights. So it's a blessing and a, and a rightful concern to be identified and things like that. But for older, I think the older generation, it was just about fighting to breathe, to exist, to walk down the street. Um, and so there is a, there is a gap, I think, and it is, and it does make it, um, it is, it's incredibly liberating and beautiful to see younger generations, but it's also incredibly sad as well, because like, I, I know that there's probably some dissonance as well in the way we sort of approach and lead ourselves in the world, you know? Um, there's many conversations I could have with you about, you know, how people take care of themselves or not, even when it comes to being out there with sex. You know what I mean? That, that some generations didn't have a sort of privilege of having, you know, prep and things like that. You know, that there was, you know, so there's loss and there's gains in every single way. But I do think it's, um, but I, I am hopeful that there's conversations and then there's, there's moments in, um, that we're shedding light on history to know who, who are the people that paved the way for us to have these liberties, you know, like I, I not, not as a lead up for myself, like playing Bayard Rustin. I was Rustin just gonna say though, that I was gonna say that kind of brings this full circle though, in a sense, because I think one of the great things about the work that you do, both as an actor and as a playwright and a director, 
I remember several years ago learning about Bayard Rustin and thinking, why wasn't I taught about this, taught about this in schools? And one of the great things about uh, doing your line of work and getting to create films like this is obviously they're entertainment, but they also serve as an educational tool to teach people about the world, the world that existed that many people were not privy to. And they should be, they should have been. Absolutely. And I feel so privileged that I am able to be a part of telling these incredible stories. But I think ultimately, and it does go come full circle when it comes to talking about why I do what I do. So I think it's a part of my, my life's mission as well, is to shed light on things that have not been talked about or exposed in some way, giving humanity to people who've been marginalized in some way or another, um, reimagining things in the world through the arts and whatever platform that I choose to. But it, it does feel purposeful, honestly. I think that ultimately what I'm trying to, I think I'm very conscious and mindful about my purpose. And the stories that I think are meaningful and impactful and that will move the needle on humanity. I'm very conscious of that. And so I can actually look at my career now. I can look at the, the breadth of my career and say, yes, I've made a choice for that and that and that, and this is why. It's never just like some random silly show that, that's sort of meaningless, that just offered me a lot of money. You know, even the shows like Fear the Walking Dead has huge messages about the world and world building and, and humanity, you know? So um, yeah, I'm very proud of the work that I've been fortunate to be a part of. Okay, two last quick questions. I promise, two last ones. But the fuchsia Versace suit from the Oscars, styled by Wayman and Micah, I just want to know what it felt like to be on that red carpet and know that you were the best dressed person, not just man, man, woman, any gender. You were the best dressed there. What did that feel like? Evan, I didn't know that. Let me tell you how it happened. Honestly, I, 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 I had a fitting with Wayman and Micah and there was like, maybe four black tuxedos and a couple white ones. And then there was the pink. We tried everything else on. Wonderful, great. My publicist liked this, great, sharp, great. First time at the Oscars, it was great. And then we were like, should we? Like, I was like, what is that? Like, should we? I tried it on. The tailor, this beautiful woman, maybe in her mid sixties, just clutches her fishes. Oh, you have to wear that. You have to wear that, it's so beautiful. People need that. She actually looked at me with tears in her eyes saying, people need that. They've been home for a year and a half. You're gonna bring the light. You gotta bring the fun. And I was like, you're right. You're right. I have to bring the light. I have to bring this, the, the, the fun. And so it was more her decision for me, but, but everyone knew that I could sort of rock that. They knew that that's actually what my soul would like, you know? And I, so I wore that and really I got to the red carpet it all, the whole moment lasted five minutes, if that. I get out, everyone's complimenting me. They're like, oh, that looks great. I'm like, I feel, I'm, I'm feel myself. I feel like my version that I wanted to be of like the Temptations or the Spinners or, or Prince. Yeah, I felt like sexy and like, you know, Teddy Pendergrass. I felt like these guys, you know, I felt like I'm a Sylvester. I felt like I'm bold, I'm out here, why not? With no apologies. Um, and I did that carpet and I got in the car. And then maybe about three minutes later, as we're driving back to the hotel, the um, assistant uh, stylist said, oh my God, Coleman, you're trending. 
I was like, for what? And I said, I, really, I said, for what? <laughs> they're like, they're like, you're out there. They're, you're, wait, they're like, you shut down the red carpet before you began. Oh my God. And Twitter was going crazy and it kept going and going and going. And then I didn't realize that I be, it became such a big thing until maybe an hour later when I realized I was fully trending and people were saying, oh, everybody has to go home. It's incredible. What a moment. Coleman Domingo kills it. So it felt good. In the aftermath, it felt really good. It felt really good. Because I also felt like I brought a sense of fun and play and color to the red carpet from men to also, because I also felt like it was masculine as well. It was masculine, it was feminine. It was whatever people wanted it to be, whatever you saw it was. But I think it allowed people to start dressing like that. Yes, I will say Steve Harvey, you're welcome. Because Steve Harvey has been killing it and wearing <laughs> colors and patterns. So have you, Spike Lee. I've seen you in your hot pink. Okay, everybody just, you know, it's okay once in a while to say, thank you, Coleman, for oh, allowing us and, let, and letting us fly our freak flags. <laughs> and I totally agree with that, Taylor, for turning to you and saying, we need this because we needed that. So I thank her for telling you that. And I thank you for wearing that. And I agree with you. I think it it was a signal shift to many about the possibilities of what men can do on a carpet. Okay, my very last question. You know, we've talked a lot about the work that you do, and I'm just wondering what you do when you're not working. You mentioned your Friday night dance parties with your husband, which sound very iconic. And I'm just wondering what are the things that you do to unwind when you're not deep in your writing or your directing or your acting or you're sitting on a myriad boards for various theater companies. When all of that is pushed aside, what are you up to? I'm cooking at home. I love to cook. Um, I, I have cookbooks from all around the world, whether it's Venetian food or Italian, Northern Italian, Japanese, Vietnamese, African soul food. I'm, I'm smoking ribs. I'm having people over. I'm a really good host. I'm making cocktails with people. I love having people over. I'm also in the garden. I just, I started gardening at the top of the pandemic and in my garden is insane now. It's so beautiful. It's really, it's just gorgeous. And I spent a lot of time there. Um, so I do that. I read a lot of um, architecture books. I go on architecture tours because I'm a big old nerd. And I love looking at buildings. And whenever I go to a new city, I'm like, oh, I want to go see the architecture and find out why and look at city planning and reasons of things. And why was that park put here? And fountains and things like that. And what's the name of that? I'm always, I'm just really curious about cities. <laughs> um, I'm also traveling a lot. I'm traveling and getting lost in cities. I usually travel and my favorite times when I travel is when I travel somewhere and I don't know exactly, there's no plan. Like I went to Japan, I didn't have a plan. I just wanted to go to Tokyo and Kyoto and I booked travel and hotels and go there. And I go and I'm like, okay, here I am. What's here? And get lost and figure it out. You know, go to Vienna the same way. I went to Vienna and it's become one of my favorite cities. But I went to Vienna because I'd never been to Vienna, but I didn't have any plans about any of it. It was just like getting there, finding a cool, I can always find a cool boutique hotel. I have certain ways of finding things. I mean, I look for the really nice restaurant. I look for a really nice um, situation if it's a private club and I know that neighborhood's good. Yeah. <laughs> and I love usually the up and coming neighborhoods in some way. Like I'll go to Mexico City and I'll go to Roma and I'll just like book a hotel and just go. So I like to travel a lot too. That's what I do. I love it. Um, 
I want to encourage everyone, if you're in the Bay Area, to get tickets for DOT. I'm going to include a link to the website to purchase tickets in the notes for this episode. I want to encourage people to check out I, I literally don't have time to even name all the projects because there are so many, but you can Google this man. There's a lot going on. I want to thank you for your time. I was going to say, I look forward to one day saying Academy Award winner, Coleman Domingo, which I do think will happen. But also what I've learned from this conversation is that that's not ultimately the most important thing. It's really uh, just continuing to do the work that you've been doing and forging the path that you forged if an award comes along, great. And I'm I'm optimistic that it will happen, but that's not really the end result that's necessary. And so I thank you for instilling that in me. I will take that with me as I move forward in my own journey. Thank you, Evan Ross Katz. I appreciate you so much. This has been a blast doing this, really. I'm, I'm an admirer of your work and I'm, I'm very honored you asked me to be on, so thank you. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut Up, Evan is hosted by me, Evan Ross Katz, and produced by Ryan Killian Krause with distribution via Acast. Special shout out to Alden Peters, Matt Storm, Sean Ross, Hank Kelly, and the myriad others who have contributed their talents past or present. For more Shut Up, Evan, binge seasons one and two, and become a subscriber on Patreon for bonus episodes, never-before-seen clips, and more. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.